Chris, are you there? I am. Yes, sir. Steve, are you there? Yes, I am. Awesome. It's working. Um, Chris, you doing good today, man? Well, no, but yeah, I, I want to do this. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I yeah, think I it's mean, I think it's important. Uh, I, I'm I'm right there with you. I was up really really late last night trying to make sense of any of this and think through everything. And uh, yeah, I don't have a don't have a ton of uh, obviously resolution to any of it, but I do think that we need to wade our way into it. Yes, sir. Well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I agree, actually. I mean, I think it's, it's time, past time. Yeah. Um, well, I was, I talked, was talking to Steve a second ago, um, kind of in line with that. There's not a, there's not a real clear definitive like direction for this. Like we're not trying to land it somewhere. There's not a big arc we're not going to do kind of the normal read the text and then make, you know, give thoughts about it or something. I think, I think what we'll do is, um, I think we'll just, I think we'll just start talking about what's happening in the world. Um, and then pivot, pivot from that, uh, into, or, or, or add the layer of it being Pentecost Sunday at some point. And if we don't ever do that, that's not, I, this is just a completely blank slate. So what, whatever this conversation becomes is fine. You know, the, we don't need to feel any pressure for any kind of polish or any kind of resolution to it. Just um, kind of letting it go where it's going to go. Okay. That that, be, that being said, uh, um, Chris, do you have though like some specific angles and specific newer thoughts that you've been wrestling through as it pertains to this that you would kind of set the stage with or um or would you prefer like joseph to kind of take the lead and ask questions back at you really either way i mean i um yeah i'm I'm happy either way i mean it, it can be i definitely have i mean part of what i'll tell you guys right up front i don't know part of what i'm struggling with is I think this conversation needs to happen, period, anyway, right? Uh-huh. I think also God gave me a word yesterday about our movement, but not necessarily to our movement. And I don't – I wouldn't have this conversation anyway, but part of the reason, Joseph, I said I wasn't sure about how to talk is that I'm not sure how much of that I'm allowed to share. Uh-huh. Uh, and so there will probably be moments in this conversation where I will break down and there will be moments where I will like, I can't say more about that. Um, but I, and I'm not trying to be, I mean, I, I don't know. I probably don't need to explain any of that to you guys, but it's, uh, it's a really, really painful word. And I don't know, I mean, I, I can barely function and I've barely been able to function. I, I have a, a mentor, another Ricky, Joseph, a man named Ricky Moore, uh-huh. um, who 
teaches at Lee University. He was at the seminary for a long time. And I was on the phone with him for like three and a half hours yesterday trying to work through this. I talked to my wife for countless hours after that. Um, and they advised me to do this, to go ahead and talk with you, but to kind of acknowledge my limits. So sure. Um, However, the conversation goes, I mean, I want to be in this. I want it to happen. I think it needs to happen. I just want you to know up front that there may be moments where I just, I mean, I've been crying pretty much nonstop for 24 hours plus. So I can't, I don't know yeah. what it's going to be like. Well, then then let's, let's do this then. And Steve, tell me if you, if this seems right to you, um, why, why don't we just start with, with what you're sensing, Chris, and just let you get us into it. And, and then we'll respond. We'll respond kind of appropriately, uh, to that. And then we can kind of, you know, if, if there's a part where you are need to take a break or you need to, you know, whatever Steve and I can take over and and this can be a, you know, this can be a conversation that's not, heavily edited we can just kind of let this be what it is um yeah i I do think i actually think that's important i think it this needs to be a conversation that's as raw as it can be sure um and the the form i think should reflect that i mean i think this is a i was just talking with robbie my pastor robbie steve um this morning about how crucial I think it is that, I mean, churches recorded messages. Many of them did. Ours did right ahead of time and how I'm worried that like people need to hear our humanity right now. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing, nothing polished, nothing, nothing prepared. And so, yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, Joseph, why don't you give a, like, just so our people, you know, give a brief intro, just a very brief intro to who Chris is, and then maybe just let them get right into it then. Yeah, I I will. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm recording now. And so more than likely, I'll, uh, I'll just play what we've said. I mean, I think, I think exactly what Chris is saying is, uh, is right on with what I feel. And so, you know, for anyone that's listening, Chris is a really good friend of mine. Um, you know, we probably, uh, closer than we should be in terms of, you know, we've never spent time together in the same place, but we talk back and forth online and phone calls and that sort of thing. And, um, feel a kind of real kinship. Um, he's one of the smartest people that I know. Uh, and it's not just a thing to fluff him up. I think it's, uh, you know, somebody that's really important and, um, they're not just not just kind of academic brilliance, but um, uh, real conceptual level thinking that it, it kind of pushes things um, more than just pure academic uh, thought can. And I think more than that, and I think the thing that people can hear and sense even thus far is like a real prophetic gift too, in the truest sense of it. And so, um, not just kind of dry thoughts about things, not philosophy, um, but like real soul level work that's being done. And 
it is not clean and is not um, uh, it's not something that's without pain, true pain and like wrestling with all of this. And so I think that's one of the things that I appreciate so much um, just about about you is that it uh, th- these things cost you something. Uh, these these thoughts. It's not just because there's so much of it that can feel cute or can feel novel or whatever. It's just like a new angle to think about something um, and like look at this dazzling new thought. It's it's like uh, you know the kind of conversations that you said you had with Ricky Moore with your wife and the tears and all of it. It's uh, I think it legitimizes. Uh, what you're saying and the, the, the kinds of things that are uh, being brought up. And so anyway, yeah, that's, that's Chris green. And um, just, yeah, Chris, why don't you, why don't you just kind of wade into what you are sensing and then we'll, we'll respond to it. Yeah, I think, I think maybe the thing to do is, is try to tell a bit of the story. Um, from from this angle i mean i several years ago i when i was in tennessee teaching at pentecostal theological seminary i was tasked with teaching a history of pentecostalism course and that summer in the readings for it i came on these books by charles parham two two books which were collections of pieces that he had done they're not, they're kind of uh, sermons and various papers, you know, kind of all collected in one place. One of them is called The Voice in the Wilderness, and the other one is called The Everlasting Way or something like that. I can't remember now, but there are two of them. And anyway, so that summer, I read them in preparation for the course. And when I was reading them, I realized, so I'd heard, I mean, and it's everywhere in the secondary literature that, that Parham was something of a racist. Right. Although in most of the, most of this, what scholars call secondary literature, which is, you know, what, what people write about the history. Most of that says, you know, he was, you know, so there's a, there's a famous biography by a man named um, Jim Goff, who's you know, a good historian, but in the biography, he essentially says, you know, Parham was a man of his time. He was paternalistically racist, but he, He, uh, I'm trying to think of the right way to say this. I can't remember the quote exactly, but essentially, he he didn't let his racism stand in the way of the work of the Spirit. Essentially, until the Azusa Street revival, and then at that point, and and this I, again, I knew already. Parham comes to the revival and is horrified by what he sees, specifically racially. Like that's what offends him. Mm-hmm. And he thinks that the spirituality, so he's offended that black and white people are touching each other for one thing. And he, you know, he drops the N word. He is explicitly horrified by the fact that they touch each other and even suggests that it's sexual, that actually the black men are preying on white women in prayer, mm-hmm. like in this moment of prayer. These So side note, footnote to that. Um, you know the, the movie The Birth of a Nation, which, if you don't know, everybody should know. 
it's a movie about the rise of the KKK and it's a glorification of the KKK. It had a screening in the White House when it was made, when it was released. And it's the theme of that story is that the black buck nigger is the threat to American culture and the KKK is rising up against him, right? So historically, there are three different moments in which the KKK kind of arises. One is right after the Civil War. The other is in the in the this period of early Pentecostalism around around that time, and then a little later in the fifties. Anyway, so Parham is using the language from the Birth of a Nation in his critique of what's happening in Azusa Street. Wow. So it's a cultural moment. And again, the birth of a nation is being screened in the White House. <laughs> right. So we're not talking about some marginal fringe event. I mean, it's a cultural exactly. This is no fringe event. This is a central cultural moment in which the KKK are being praised as the Christian saviors. Right. And Parham latches to that. And I don't know if any of you, if either of you saw yesterday, I shared on Facebook and Twitter. A poster from Parham's revivals at those times. And at the end of the bottom of the poster, so it's a you know all these declarations that Parham makes about you know the the move of the spirit and revival is coming. All of this. The bottom of the poster is are three words: convincing, convicting, converting. But he spells those three words with a K. So and the K, K is much larger, so it's very clear yeah, yeah, it's, what he's doing. It's very clear what he's doing exactly. And some, we don't know exactly when that, I haven't been able to, to show for sure yet, when that poster was first made. But we do know that as late as 1927, he was praising the KKK in his newspaper, his Apostolic Faith um, letter, and saying that they had the highest ideals for mankind and he believed that if they could be filled with the spirit, they would accomplish their work even more quickly. Woof. And which, you know, ties to that old Pentecostal idea that everybody's mission work would be better if they just were filled with the Holy spirit. Like imagine what Billy Graham could have done if he had had the Holy ghost. Right. 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 Except he's saying that about the KKK. And so I had known all most of that, not not all of it. I didn't know about the poster. I didn't know about the write up about the KKK, but I knew that he was a racist. And he's not to cut you off, but he just so that people know, he is he's central in this movement. Like he's Absolutely. for a long time. That, that, that biography by Bob calls him the father of Pentecostalism. But it's pretty straight. So Hold yeah, on. he's not. Hang on one second. Sound. Something's happening oh, with yeah, my yeah. phone. <clears throat> the devil's fighting us. I, I just started hearing. <laughs> anyway, hold on. Uh, all right. So go ahead. He, I, I said he's central in this, and then we can. I'll cut that little bit out. Okay. So yeah, he's central, but even more than we realize now, for two reasons. One, Goff, when he wrote that autobiography, or not autobiography, when he wrote that biography. He described him as the father of Pentecostalism. So, hmm. and that's how I was taught, you know, that sure. he was, he was not only central, he was foundational. You know, he's the one that gives us the language of initial evidence applied to tongue speech and all that kind of stuff. Right. Which I'm getting to in just a moment. So he's a, yeah, he's a major, major, major figure. 
we don't know that so much now because he's been written out of the story in, in ways that I'll talk about. But so again, I'm, I'm taking too much time, but I'm writing this. I mean, I'm preparing for this course. I read Parham's books. And, and as I'm reading, I realize that this is not a man who happened to be racist. He had a theory of racism. Like uh-huh. he had a, a whole philosophy of racism that argued several, several different things. But one of them is that humanity was broken into three classes by God's design. God had created the world and broken humanity into three classes. The, the top class, the ruling class, which is his language, the ruling class are the sons and daughters of Abraham, which are white. So he, he's a, he believes in British Israelism. So he believes that the people in the United States, white people in the United States, are the descendant, the literal blood descendants of Abraham. And they are the ruling class. The middle class he calls the I forget the title, what language he uses just now. The, the bottom class is what he calls the bar the barbaric classes, uh, the heathen. Mm-hmm. The, the middle class are religious folk, and that's not the, the, the title that he uses for it. But he says that God has ordered humanity in these ways and given each kind of rung of humanity different capacities, spiritually speaking. And only the ruling class are capable, const- like constitutionally, physically capable of being filled with the spirit and having the fullness of the life of God. So like, you know, of course, all of these early teachers are holding to a full gospel, right? That they, and he he sees the formalist, the middle class group, the religious class as capable of becoming Christians, but they can't have the full life of the spirit. They Mm. cannot be filled with the spirit. And all of that is tied directly to race for him. It's all about the, the heathen classes at the bottom are, he says, the overwhelming majority of people in the world, and they're the people of dark skin. So brown people, red, this is what he calls them, brown people, red people, black people. They're all, he says, virtually incapable of any kind of spiritual experience at all, much less being filled with the Holy Spirit. And they are made to be the servant class in the kingdom of God. So they're made to do the work of the house servant, house slave. And what this, what I started to realize very quickly is that his theology of tongue speech was a manifestation of his racism. It wasn't that there was a man who taught about speaking in tongues who also happened to be a racist. It's that his understanding of tongues speech was an expression of his racism. And we were given the languages of the world, not so we could bring them into a share in God's work, but so that we could rule over them. Right. So I'm, of course, horrified. Right? Like, I'm absolutely terrified. Um, Joseph, do you, do you need to... Take a moment. I mean, no. When when you guys hear me, I think you're hearing. Uh, I'm muting my microphone, but I think you can still hear it. I'm just trying to yell at my son. He's being loud. Um, but yeah, don't don't. Uh, if it's loud on your end, it, it won't be in the recording. 
Okay, yeah, no, no, well, it's no worries. I mean, I just want to make sure you're okay. Um, no, I, I'm okay. Yeah, 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 I'm good. And so, I mean, I, I'm, I'm wrapping up now, but I mean, that's what started all this for me was that kind of realization. I mean, I had already like felt we weren't taking race issues seriously enough, but in terms of coming aware of the ways in which our movement was complicit in it, you know, it was foundational thought, to it. Yeah. Right. And what I did, what I discovered that summer is that for Parham, at least it was foundational. Mm-hmm. So I started that started reading from there. And I very quickly found out that Parham was so offended by what happens in Azusa street. He veers away and right in the aftermath of that, there's a huge scandal. So he gets arrested in Houston and charged or he gets arrested on claims of sodomy. Huh. The next day he gets released and the charges are dropped, but he's from that point on toxic for people. So he gets pushed out of the movement very early on because of that. Um, not because of his racist views. In fact, one of his closest lieutenants is a guy named W.F. Carruthers, who went on to be involved in the Ascenders of God. And Carruthers, in the Assemblies of God paper, you know, comes right out and says, racial division is the work of the Holy Spirit. God is making us hate each other. Because God made us to be separate from each other. And the only thing that will keep us separate from each other is this hatred that God is stirring up in us. Was he using specific text to back that up or, or where was, where was he or how was he arriving at that? Yeah. Great question, Steve. I mean, there, there are a few things. One is Parham was his teacher, right. And kind of mentor and Parham had lots and lots of teaching about this. In fact, there's another, um, major Pentecostal figure, um, William Branham, a little later, you know, a he- the healing evangelist, William Branham, mm-hmm. who has very many of these same beliefs. And that is that what's happening, it, it's, it's very sexual and it's racial. So it's racialized and sexualized, just like we saw in Birth of a Nation, the movie that I, that I mentioned before. And the idea was that God destroyed the world at the flood because of intermarriage. And that what God hates above all things is racial integration. That that's the um, so Branham and Parham are different in this way. Branham sees racial integration as 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 um, a, a violation of God's will, but he does think that each one of the races should have their own movement of the spirit. Parham is hierarchalized that, right? So one way of thinking about it is Branham seems to think we should kind of all be in our own corners. You know, black should be in Africa and browns should be in Latin America and white should be in America. Like that's their way of construing the way racial, of course, obviously that's historically and theologically a a disaster, but that's the way that they conceive of it, right? Like God has given America to white people and Africa to black people. The difference is Branham sees that as kind of separate but equal, whereas Parham sees that hierarchically. Whites are to rule over people of color and other whites who are not as spiritual, so not only people of color but also um, you know, other whites. So, for instance, David Daniels, Pentecostal theologian, has done some work about how at Azusa Street, Irish people were considered part of the black and brown communities 
they weren't considered white. Hmm. So the, the history is pretty complicated, right? I mean, it, it's pretty dizzyingly complicated because it's not as, it is related to skin color, but it's not as simple as skin color. So could, could you, uh, just for people listening that aren't familiar, can you just speak a little bit to what you, to Azusa Street, just to paint a picture of what is kind of parallel to the thought that you've been talking about with Parham? Oh, yeah, yeah, good, good, good point. Yeah, and I, again, I don't know what people do and don't know here. Um, so, yeah, please always stop me and have me spell that out. I mean, so, interestingly, Parham, I mean, Seymour ends up starting Azusa Street Mission because he he gets connected to to Parham and famously goes to Houston to hear him teach. There's an old story that he had to sit in the hallway. You brought, you guys have probably heard this because it's it's one of the most famous details of the story. Yeah. But the, the story goes that Seymour had to sit in the hallway to hear Parham teach. But we don't actually I have never actually been able to find an original document for that. It's in all the secondary literature, but if you go and look at the books, there's never a footnote. And if there is a footnote, it's a footnote to another book that doesn't footnote it. Uh, so interestingly, this is this may be what I what I think maybe at this point is that it's a legend that developed because people knew how racist Parham was. So it becomes a way of talking about well, he may have taught him, but um, but I'm not sure about that. I haven't been able to to verify that one way or another. Um, what were you going to say? Something I feel like I cut you off. Well, no, I was. Well, I was just going to say because I can't remember if it was mentioned earlier, but just so people understand, obviously based on what you just described, Seymour was a, a man of color. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a black, uh, yeah, son of slaves. Yes, and and who uh, was in California at the at, at the onset of of this yeah, outbreak yeah, in so, the sphere. Yeah, if we back up just a little bit, so Seymour was a holiness preacher. And he's a holiness preacher who believes – so before Azusa Street, right? So in the late 1800s, Seymour is a black, one-eyed, son of slaves, holiness preacher in Indianapolis who comes to be convinced that God wants to integrate the races, that God wants worship in which blacks and whites and people of color worship together. And interestingly, he – he goes out of his way to attend churches that are inter- integrated or trying to integrate, of course, breaking the law to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Right in the middle of Jim Crow. Right. Precisely. Right. And where there are laws against blacks and whites meeting together and sitting together. And so like, we know that around this same time, AJ Tomlinson builds a church in Cleveland, Tennessee. AJ Tomlinson becomes one of the major early leaders for the church of God in Cleveland, Tennessee. And he builds a, a church, basically a cathedral for, although they don't call it a cathedral, for the Church of God in Cleveland. And there are, we see, we can see in the, the um, architectural plans, the way that they have seating divided for people of color. There's a section for colored people in the, in the architectural plans that Tomlinson is using to build this. Mm. And so that's, that was the rule of the day. And Seymour for everybody, right? Not just Pentecostals, by the way. I mean, this is true right across the board. And Seymour is a part of a group that's trying to break that. And he's he's breaking the lines of sexual difference too, because of course, black holiness churches are ordaining women. 
many of them at least, some mm-hmm. of them. And so he's involved like in affirming women in ministry in full equality and the full integration of the races, which was incredibly progressive in that moment, right? In a sense that it was going against the grain of the dominant culture that controlled the churches. And so then he ends up getting connected with Parham's teaching and he, it, it convinces him that there is this need for this spirit empowerment, tongue speech, and so on. And and he does spend some time, we do know he spent some time in Houston with Parham, maybe sitting in the hallway, maybe not. Regardless, then he comes to Los Angeles, Seymour does, and starts pastoring a church, but a holiness church, and they quickly throw him out because of his teaching about spirit baptism. And that lands him at the mission, and he starts having services in which he's preaching this full gospel, the fivefold gospel. Jesus is Savior, Sanctifier, Spirit Baptizer, Healer, and Coming King. And eventually Parham shows up and tries to take it over because a black man should not be leading this movement. And that, you know, Seymour gets him locked out, literally. And then Parham starts another Pentecostal mission down the street and on the sign says, you know, we're not doing the stuff they're doing. We're not racially integrating. We're, we're doing something that's, that's truly civilized. And that's one of the things that Parham hated is this is a fascinating detail about the founder of Pentecostalism, so to speak, is that he, although that's a, that's a bad title for him because the Pentecostal movement starts in multiple places in the world around the same time. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's polycentric. There's no, there's no one place, no one person. But regardless, he actually believed that what you and I have grown up thinking of as classical Pentecostal spirituality. So, you know, the the sweaty Pentecostalism of <laughs> right. preaching for hours and praying for hours and church services that last in the middle of the night. He thought all of that was demonic and black. Wow. That that was, sat- that, 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 that was satanic. And be- because it was from Africa, it was African religion. And that what was needed was a, a, a spirit-empowered intellectualism. And that's, by the way, if you go back to the KKK on the poster, the first K is convincing. Like it was, a, it was an intellectual approach to Pentecostalism, which is, you know, just, a, again, a footnote to all this. But then the Azusa Street Revival explodes and people from all over the world come to experience what's happening there. And, and as everyone knows, everyone is shocked by the, the racial integration that's happening there, right? That it's led by a black man, that women have such a, a prominent role. Children even have a prominent role. And people of color are, you know, moving back and forth, some of them leading, being led, speaking, listening, praying for one another. Um, you know, Frank Bartleman, a famous evangelist at the time famously says the color line is washed away in the blood. But of course, what actually happened is that the color line was temporarily covered over by the blood <laughs> right? <laughs> and the blood was quickly cleaned up so that the color line could be restored. Because Seymour so gets, is, Seymour gets pushed out, right? At, he, absolutely. he goes from being central to this thing that had national attention and international attention to being in obscurity again, right? That's right. So the early, early on, 
you know, so the revival is basically three years, right? Um, more or less. Then a little bit less, actually, but yeah, roughly three years. But by the time, and, and Seymour dies in 1922, but basically by, my, by 1910, he had no place in the Pentecostal movement. In 1913, there was a, a world conference of Pentecostals in Los Angeles. It was a worldwide camp meeting. That's what they called it. In Los Angeles, of Pentecostals, 1913, right? Uh-huh. He was not. He was not. He was not invited. I don't mean not invited to speak. I mean he was not invited to come. Wow. So by 1913, already, the church is dividing along racial lines fiercely, and he becomes after that. After that 1913 event, he becomes seriously disillusioned mm -hmm. and ends up rewriting the constitution of the Azusa Street mission to say that white whites are not allowed to be in leadership. And in that write-up and in his explanation about the write-up, he talks about how this grieves him and it's, it's like an admission of the failure of what he had hoped God was bringing about, which was in racial integration. Remember, I mean, even before his, right. it, in fact, it seems like the reason he was convinced that there was this need for spirit baptism is that Pentecost was the event that he had been hoping for. Pentecost was the racial integration that he was felt called to seek. And now Parham gives him language for that, right? But when he tries to enact it, it quickly spins apart. Three times while he's in, so from 1906 to 1909, three times uh, different white people, two times a man, once a woman, try to take over the mission because a black person shouldn't be leading it. And then he doesn't get invited to that 1913 camp meeting, and then he just, it, it crushes him. And by the time he dies in 1922, there are just a, a few white people left at the mission. It's a mostly black church. I, mean, I can keep going. I'm, I'm trying to stop so you guys get a chance to redirect me. I mean, it's it's fascinating history, and it's a hundred years ago, more than a hundred years ago, and um, you know, without jumping to the end of this too quickly, I mean, there's it's very clear. There are very clear parallels to what the world is like right now, and uh, it. I, I think it's very poignant history because. It's, you know, it's the, it's ours, at least for, uh, all of us that have kind of grown up in this movement or whatever, you can see the, you can see the scaffolding back down to the bottom of, you know, you can see where, how this has worked its way into what we know now. Well, Joseph, that's exactly right. And this is where this starts to get really personal for me is that the, Whenever I teach this, this history, some of this history, I get I get a lot of pushback, and I get a lot of I, I, not only pushback. I mean, I want to be careful here. There are a lot of people who are really grateful for it and open to it, but the pushback is telling, and the pushback is you know. So one of the things people tend to say is Parham was an outlier. Mm -hmm. You know that Parham was, and and the fact of the matter is that is just not true. 
it is just not true. He was not an outlier. He he was he was an eccentric figure, but his racism was not exceptional. What was exceptional is that he had developed it into an entire theory. Most of the racism we do see was far more gut level than that. His was a heady racism. But it's revisionist, right? It goes back and says because he was dis- discredited for, you know, the charge that he was brought in under or whatever and he fades away within the movement that he it kind of blots out his influence early on. Is exactly. that what you're saying? Right. What I'm saying is we've we've bought this narrative, right? And right. it was a narrative, you know, that was spun around like the so th- there are three myths. So uh, Robbie Waddell, you know, who you know well, um, um, Joseph, Steve, I don't know if you've had a chance to meet Robbie or know who he is, but Robbie talks a lot about the myth of Pentecost and the myth of Azusa Street. Uh-huh. And he talks about how when we read the Pentecost story in Acts 2, we have a myth about what actually was going on there. And right. I'd love to talk about that with you guys in terms of what's actually happening in Acts 2 is much more complicated than what we've been told. Mm-hmm even along these lines of, of issues of quote-unquote race. Then, two, there's the myth of Azusa Street as this point in which the Pentecostal movement does what no one else in the world was doing and that they racially integrate. Well, that's not true either because, first of all, holiness movements had already been striving for that, and not only holiness movements, right? This had been, I mean, study the history of the AME, for instance. I mean, you can see that for a long time, people had been struggling toward racial integration. The Pentecostal movement is is marked by that, but marked in opposite ways, depending on who the speaker was, right? So Parham and Seymour are representative of, of that conflict that's right there at the heart of the movement from the beginning of Pentecost is, I mean, so for Parham and for people like W.F. Carruthers and others who follow from him, the whole work of the spirit is to create racial distinction to make it clear that blacks belong over there with their own culture and whites belong over here with our own culture. And there's that theme, which is the one that wins. Mm -hmm. But there's also the theme of people like Seymour and Lawson and others that we can talk about who are pushing back against that, who are, who are suggesting, no, 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 wait, they're, the the opposite is what the Pentecost is about. The opposite is about racial integration, about overcoming these racial distinctions, uh, the, and the and the all the abuse that goes with them. So, but here's here's the thing: the racism that you and I have grown up with manifests itself in the way we try to tell that story. Right? Yeah. The we we try to narrate it as you know, well, it may have been bad for Parham, but he was exceptional. Or we try to narrate it like it was bad at the beginning, but thankfully it got better. And this is what I would add to what Robbie is saying. It's not, it's not only the myth of Pentecost and not only the myth, the myth of Azusa Street. There's also the myth of the Memphis Miracle and other similar integra- uh, uh, reconciliation moments, right? So famously in, in Memphis in the, in the 90s, there is a, a racial reconciliation moment at the Society for Pentecostal Studies in which white Pentecostal leaders wash the feet of black Pentecostal leaders and seek forgiveness. It's a, it's a solemn assembly. Mm-hmm. And of course there were lots of those. Um, that was probably the most prominent one. And, and the most significant institutional act is that they dissolved. There was a Pentecostal kind of world 
community, um, like a, a community of Pentecostal clergy that was all white. And they dissolved it and started a new one that was racially integrated, um, which still holds. And still that, That's still true. All of that happens around that Memphis miracle. But a lot of the narrative we tell is that that was kind of the moment of healing, right? When in fact, all it was at most was an acknowledgement that healing was needed. Healing did not happen. Right. And right from the word go, even at that meeting, the black and white leaders were saying, this is not the healing. This is the beginning. And if you go back and read what they actually said, people like Leonard Lovett and others, it's pretty clear that they they are worried that what will happen is people will think this was it, right? We got together, we prayed, and now that's forgiven and let's move on. Mm-hmm. And that is exactly what happened. And so there, you know, what, what I think people in my circles love to say, well, progress has been made. And that's true and untrue. There are some things that are much better, for sure. But everything that has gotten better has gotten better in ways that have allowed racism to adapt rather than actually erasing it. Mm -hmm. So there have been real improvements, especially structurally in terms of laws and institutional forms and so on. But instead of eradicating racism, it's just forced racism to adapt. And racism has absolutely adapted. And so we're in that sense, we're no less racist now than what was happening at the beginning of our movement. And we, we're lying to ourselves about that. I wonder, Chris, can we talk a little bit about so I okay, let me put it this way. I know that this is a oversimplified way of saying it, but but would you say that the the Acts two passage is basically kind of the foundation for the Pentecostal movement it would be kind of their go-to defining it's the definitive yeah. metaphor that's right that's the defining sure. so with that being said then let's let's talk a little bit i'd love to hear your thoughts on the the myth of that and like maybe if we could establish may, a little bit of what what truth is actually being talked about in that text and then we could take that and and you can talk about how we have uh poorly taken that truth and integrated it into our movement even currently. Yeah. So one of the things that, that's a great, and I appreciate this. It's a great, a great question. Um, part of what, you know, is happening with me and, and I'm sure you can sense this in the, in the listeners can too, is that I, I think there's an overwhelming pressure. I, I'm sensing an overwhelming pressure and I've been, you know, for years now studying this, very closely. And what I'm discovering every day, literally every day, is we've not told this story truthfully. Like we, we absolutely have not. And we're still not. Right. So and it does, as you're suggesting, Steve, it cuts back all the way to the beginning. So in, in Acts 2, right, Peter stands up and says, you know, he gives a sermon, which um, we can talk about later. But famously, he says, you know, this is that. This is what the prophet Joel prophesied, right? Mm-hmm. And he's doing that on the basis of the promise in Acts 1 that Jesus says, you know, it's, it's not for you to know the seasons. It's not for you to know when the end of the world is coming. It's, it's your job to be witnesses. 
and the Spirit's going to come upon you. Go and sit in Jerusalem. Wait, the Spirit will come upon you, and you will go from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth, right? So then Peter stands up on Acts 2, I mean, on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, and says, this is what Joel prophesied, right? And the way we read that story, you guys correct me, but the way that I've always heard that story presented is like the the moment that everything changed, right? So there's this, you know, famous story, famous version of a sermon in which, you know, there's the Peter before Pentecost and the Peter after Pentecost, right? So before, mm-hmm. before Pentecost, he's Simon. He's the, he's the reed that's so easily moved. He's the, the one who takes Satan's side, but after Pentecost, he's the rock. After Pentecost, he's the man of mission and power. Yep. And that's just, completely false to the story <laughs> it's just not at all what happens and and we know that's not what happens because one of the things peter says on the day of pentecost is this is what Pro- joel prophesied this is for sons daughters those who are here those who are far off this is for all flesh in acts 10 the spirit tells him to go to Cornelius's house. And when he gets to Cornelius's house and sees the spirit fall on Cornelius's family, Gentile family, what does Peter say? Now I know God is no respecter of persons. And this is like, I think it's been a few years since I've looked at this, but we're not talking about a few months. We're talking about years later, maybe as much as 19 years later. Wow. So, I mean, a long time has passed, however much time has passed, right? And I can't remember the exact number. You should, every, whoever's listening, you should look it up. But it's it's not like a day or two, right? We're talking about a long stretch of time right. before Peter kind of has this realization. But it doesn't end there. The, the story doesn't end there. Later, Peter is in Antioch, and Paul is there. And Paul, Paul has to confront Peter because Peter has broken table fellowship with Gentiles. Right. And he's broken fellowship with Gentiles because of the pressure from the church in Jerusalem. So Peter's own story tells us that he, even though he said this is for all flesh, he had no idea what that meant. He was just as shocked as anybody else when the Gentiles spoke in tongues. And he was deeply disturbed when uncircumcised Gentiles were baptized and filled with the spirit. He had no idea what to do with any of that. So the fact is he himself, even though in the ancient world, their way of what we know as racism now is different from what was in the ancient world, but he still did see the world through a Jew versus Gentile lens. Even as he says that on the day of Pentecost, and of course, what that leads to, right, is the so people from all over the world have gathered. They hear this, and three thousand people, of course, famously, are added to the church. And then in the next sermon, five thousand people are added to the church. And Acts is very clear to tell us what that results in. And every I don't know how we miss this, but as soon as now all of these people are either Jews or God fearers. So they're Jews from the diaspora who've come back to Jerusalem for the feast, uh-huh. or they're they're perhaps Gentiles who have committed to a Jewish way of life. Regardless, they still belong in what Peter and the other church leaders perceive as the Jewish community, as over against the Gentile one. And even within that community, what happens is 
the Greek widows, in other words, the Jews from the diaspora, their widows begin to complain that the leaders are caring for the, the kind of native Jerusalemites, the, the, the Hebrew-speaking and Aramaic-speaking Christians in Jerusalem. So there's a racial, again, racism is different in the ancient world, but an analog to our racism at the day of Pentecost, in the immediate aftermath, and in the long run. And the book of Acts ends, I mean, we love to preach about how, you know, Acts ends without an ending because it's still happening, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, how many of you heard that? Like the whole, you know, the Acts, we're still living the book of Acts because it, it doesn't end. Right. But it right. does end. And what it ends with is a word of rejection against the Jews. It ends with Paul saying, God is done with you. So that, again, the way I heard the story, the whole Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, other parts of the earth was like a, a spreading of, of a stain, you know, where it starts in the center and remains in the center, but then spreads out across the whole world. But in fact, what happens in Acts is it starts in Jerusalem and is driven out of Jerusalem. Hmm. And then it moves to Judea and is driven out of Judea into Samaria and then is driven out of Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And it's not like it's everywhere around the globe. It is no longer where it was. That's what's happening at the end of Acts, which is actually a deeply tragic ending, not a, not a triumphal one. So that, I mean, maybe that answers your question, Steve. I mean, I can keep going, but I think you get the sense there. Uh, Marty Middlestaff, who teaches in um, at Vanguard, I think, in 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 California, Assemblies of God School. There, he has a really good book on suffering in Luke and Acts that draws up some of these themes. How would you speak to so how so how would you speak to the um oh, how do I even ask it? Like, so let's even let's say, OK, so we we get to witness Peter's progression to some degree and in the way that he still misunderstands what was actually happening um, mm -hmm. at that moment. But how would you describe Pentecost at its best then? Like like what actually was happening, even if Peter misrepresented it, how, how do you read that as it pertains to the prophecy in Joel. Well, I think I think it is meant to be. I think Luke wants it to be understood to be the end of the world that God intends, in which all the people. I mean, Luke goes out of his way to say there are people there from everywhere in the world, and they've gathered and they hear the praise of God and hear the message about Jesus, and at least many of them come to believe it. And so I think. You know, that's why it's so important that the, the kind of apocalyptic themes, right? They, they hear the rushing mighty wind, which is, of course, calling back on the wind that's hovering over the the abyss in the beginning, Genesis. It's yeah, same, wind, same words. Yeah, exactly, right? And then the wind that separates the water so Israel can cross. So this is this is Genesis, this is Exodus. This is also the fire, which is, you know, recalls so many themes, but it's it's the, the fire. I think mostly it's the fire of Sinai, which is the fire of the of God is consuming fire that comes at the end to destroy all that is wrong with the world. So that what Luke is doing, and I think is giving witness to the fact that the Pentecostal, the, the event of Pentecost 
was the end of the world in which God brought all peoples together and fulfilled his promise to bless all nations through Abraham. But that's, that's what's happening in that moment. But part of what makes the Christian story the Christian story is that we have lots of places where it ends and then doesn't end. Right. So this is this is what happens like with Jesus. Jesus comes, but the story doesn't end. He ends up living a life and being killed, but the story doesn't end. He's dead and then resurrected, but then the story doesn't end. He's ascended. He ascends. Right. And the story doesn't end. And then the spirit falls. But the story doesn't end. Right. And there's a way in which Christians, the whole Christian story is told by these apocalyptic breaking in moments. world keeps on going chris chris you broke up for just a second um you oh, yeah it, it was just it was just brief but i i don't i didn't want you to lose what that little middle section so you said it, it can be seen as these little moments of breaking in then just keep going from there okay yeah so these little moments of breaking in but the world actually doesn't end in some sense the world does end but then it doesn't quite end because Things keep happening, right? And this is why throughout the New Testament, right, there's this reference to we live in the age, in in the end of ages, right? The the end of the world has come upon us, or the kingdom is at hand, right? So everywhere in Jesus' teaching and everywhere in the apostolic teaching is this belief that we live in the last days, Right. right? But what that means is not the end of history like we've imagined it. What it means is that our our entire lives are lived under the pressure of the apocalyptic end. Mm-hmm. Right? That that the, the the apocalypse is always at hand in every historical moment. So the I think Pentecost at its best, like Pentecostalism at its best, is a is a movement of the end of the world. It's apocalypse. It's the belief that God has broken in and fulfilled his promise. And what I think we get wrong is we see that as the end instead of the beginning. So the end comes to us, but when God brings the end to us, he brings the end to us to begin something. Yes. And we settle for the end. Yes, yes, yes. We keep trying to make the end the end instead of letting the end be the beginning. Yeah, if it's that, that's such a good good point because i mean if it if it is related back to joel 2 and it's like okay so what is yeah this isn't an end but what what's this the beginning of and it's like this is the beginning of almost like what i would call like a um a living breathing temple like a multicultural temple because it's where god's express uh, expression is going to be found in the world and it's going to be through the voices of according to joel servants women children men old young and it's it's Judas, yeah, right? Yeah, it's this inbreaking of this, like you said, this beginning of that expression. That is, a, I think, exactly right. Exactly what, it, at its best, that's what Pentecostalism represents. So, uh, Bishop Ithiel Clemens from Church of God in Christ. Uh, I'm pretty sure this was at the Memphis Miracle event, or maybe in the aftermath of it. But anyway, he's he famously said, and I think this is. Man, such a true statement that the the responsibility for racial integration falls on all people, but especially on Christians because of what we believe about Jesus. Right. Mm -hmm. But it falls even more especially on Pentecostals 
because of what we believe about the spirit coming at Pentecost. That, and I think that is exactly right. I think mean, I think that's exactly right. I, I do too. And I think that, I think, what well, so for people that didn't grow up in this or the people that, you know, are, are listening to this and don't have any idea what charismatics are, because there's a lot of folks in our church and that listen to this that may not, I think it's still important to go into this with the level of specificity that we did because it is our story, it's our history or whatever, but it's a microcosm for a much bigger thing um, that we're obviously seeing uh, everywhere right now. And I think that every every movement probably uniquely has their own uh, version of this, and w- whether it's religious or not. But I think the idea of uh, ends versus beginnings is so important because the way that we tell our history is always with it's like we try to make monuments out of things, you know, like we, this happened and we, we can celebrate that it happened instead of saying, uh, because it's so much more of a clean story to tell this happened and we, we achieved this and then we achieved this rather than this was ambiguous and it was progress, but it led to a new opening and a new possibility, which led to this, which then led to this new possibility. And it's like, I love the idea that it's always more, complicated it's more ambiguous than we than the way that we tell the story i mean i think it was robbie that told me at azusa that there were kids like writing and transcribing tongues or something oh, like absolutely. that yeah like, that's, that's exactly right it's way more a, it's way more bizarre yeah. than we tell the story you know um so in light of that kind of how can we how can we pivot not away from our movement, but how can we make it kind of more of a, more of a broader universal kind of thing and speak to what we're experiencing right now, even if it is within the context of Pentecostalism within what's happening right now, but how can we kind of move it into what, because obviously no, anybody that is awake knows just how unique of a moment we're in right now. So what, how, how do we do that? Does that question make any sense? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I would say, and in, in, I'm echoing what you just said. I mean, I think this the specificity is important because generalities never kind of open our eyes to the truth. And the fact is, what I'm describing about Pentecostal history is true about Baptist history. It's true about Methodist history. Right. It's true about Catholic history. It is true about American history. And of course, ultimately, it's true about human history. Right? Like, so I mean, you can keep scaling out, and it's true, right? But I think generalities are the language of people avoiding truth. Yes. Like it's it's a study. I really believe in the distinction between intentionality and purposefulness. So I think intentionality is when you consciously choose to do something. But purposefulness comes from your gut and that all of us end up doing most of what we do on purpose, but not intentionally. So I think that very few people in our world are intentionally racist. Right. I think very few people are intentionally racist. I think almost everyone we know is purposely racist. What I mean by that is that there is, and not only, again, here, this is where this, we're talking about human beings, right? But that, but human beings 
live in particular times in particular places. You know, they speak particular languages. And in America, especially in the Bible Belt, and especially amongst conservative Christians, there is overwhelming racism that is never seen because it's not intentional or only rarely intentional. And I, I think being as specific as we can about this is a way of pointing to how our generalities about our history aren't true. And when we start to attend to, my, my hope would be, if we read, so hear what we think we know about Seymour and Parham, and then actually read the history and realize, oh, man, it is much more difficult, much, much uglier than I could have imagined. And then realize that's true about everything, <laughs> right? Like that's, right. that's true about everybody and everything. And it's only on the far side of that kind of truthfulness that we can look back and see, oh, but in spite of all that, God was doing this, this, and this, and this, right? And and I do think that that's a version, that's that's an important part of the story too, is how God was at work in spite of all this, right? In spite of Peter's failure and the church's failure in Jerusalem and all of that. God is, you know, obviously still at work in the midst of all that. And the same is true in the Pentecostal movement. And the same is true right across the board in Bible Belt America and right around the world. Mm -hmm. But so again, I want everybody to hear me clearly saying that, right? We're, this is not to say that God has not been working. It's to say that our generalities about what God has been doing are often <clears throat> unintentional but purposeful ways of not facing the truth about ourselves. I mean, and I don't mean the truth about our past. I mean the truth about ourselves, like right now, today, the truth, not just our 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 unwillingness to be truthful about our past is a, an unwillingness to be untruthful about ourselves in the present. There, there's no such thing as I'm truthful about the present, but I don't want to face the past. Right. But, I mean, the unwillingness to face the past is a present moment decision. Continuing to live out of out of falsehood, I I think I think exactly what you said is is uh, is profound. I think that an inability or an unwillingness to reckon with the truth of our history is, you know, obviously sabotages us in our present. It continues to perpetuate falsehood. Um, yeah. Why is that? Do you think? Why, as far as not wanting to to reckon with that, is it the obvious reasons of like, don't want to, like, is there a sense of an embarrassment, or is it because there's a fear of what it may lead to as far as changes in the present? Well, I think there are two two main factors, and they're deep deeply interrelated. One is because of the devil. I think this is what deception, demonic deception, looks like, actually, in lived life. I, there's a distinction. Joseph, you and I have talked about this, I think. But I think it's really important to make a distinction between the demonic and the satanic. Mm -hmm. Have we talked about this, Joseph? I think so, yeah. So the demonic is destructive, right? So if you think of the demonic, you should think of, like, the Legion story in the, in the, in the Gospels, you know, where there's this man— who is, you know, living in the tombs and cutting himself and breaking chains and so on. But what's important is to realize that the demonic is always in service of the satanic. And the satanic is false light. You know, he comes as a minister of light. And 
the satanic deception is always the promise to protect you from the demonic. <laughs> so the way this works is the demonic attacks you, puts you under threat, threatens to undo your life, and then Satan offers you an alternative to protect you from it. And you take it because you think that will settle the issue. So Paul, Paul gives us an example of this in 2 Corinthians, and I promise I am answering your question, Steve. That Paul Paul answers deals with this in Second Corinthians, where the church has put out a man who has sinned. We don't know exactly what he had done. Maybe it's the same man mentioned in First Corinthians, but we don't know for sure. Regardless, some man has sinned, and the church has expelled him. And then the man repents and tries to come back, and the church won't allow him to. Mm-hmm. And Paul says, "You should let him return, because we are not ignorant of Satan's devices." And what he's teaching them is. That whatever this man's sin was, was demonic. The satanic temptation was to bring the whole community into self-righteousness. So by putting out the one man to protect themselves, they all sinned much more grievously grievously than the man they put out. That's how Satan's deception works. So the primary reason we can't face the truth about our past is that we are deceived. And we're yeah. deceived because we've believed lies that we think protect us from the demonic. Yeah, and and the, and the lies the, the lies look like light, so it is precisely. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And what they look like is order, law, and order. Mm-hmm. They look like structure. This is why rioting frightens us so much more than seeing a police officer murder someone. Mm-hmm. Because even though we're grieved by the police officer murdering someone. We're frightened by rioting mm-hmm. because a police officer murdering someone we know will not affect us. We know it won't. Mm-hmm. We think that is something that happened to two other people. And even if it's a rogue, sorry, ahead, sorry. Well, I'm just saying, even if it's even if it is towards the extreme, it's still within what would be considered order. But but rioting right. on I mean, the Oh, of course, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, no, no. It's 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 considered to be wrong, right? Mm-hmm. But the point is, it's it doesn't awaken fears of the demonic for us. Yeah. Right. So, for for instance, one of the ways you, you can see this everywhere is in the aftermath of these of these events, you know, where where black men or brown men or or whomever are killed by police officers. Every single time, if you listen, you will hear what people say is. That wasn't about racism. That was pure evil. Or that wasn't about the police officers. That was pure evil. Mm -hmm. And what they're saying, right, is they're externalizing it. It's not about us. That's about other stuff. That's pure evil. Not, not, Not something that could happen to me or to you because we're people. Yep. That's pure evil, right? But there is no such thing as pure evil. I mean, theologically, by definition. Evil only exists as the corruption of something good. And people are the ones who do evil. And they do evil because they're deceived into acting by conceptions of order. So the, the point I'm making here, which you know could take a long time, I'll try to compress it, is that we're deceived and we're deceived by order. We're deceived by structure, by the satanic. And this is this is what happens to Peter. The reason that he breaks fellowship with the Gentiles in Antioch is that it's disorderly. It's not 
following the law. It's why he struggles to go to, to Cornelius' house in the first place, right? Because when the sheet comes down and has all of these dirty animals on it and God says, rise, kill, and eat, what does Peter say? I've never broken the law. Like, I can't, I can't do those things. Right. When Paul meets Jesus in Philippians 2, when Paul recounts his encounter with Jesus, what he says about himself before he meets Jesus is that I was blameless concerning the law. Yep. So it's lawfulness, not lawlessness, that is our temptation. Ooh. Lawlessness is demonic, right? Lawlessness is destructive. Lawlessness is what happens with legion. But lawfulness is what put legion outside the community in the first place. Come on, man. And lawfulness is what made them reject Jesus when Jesus healed legion. Yep. The community was satanically deceived. So when Jesus comes and does the impossible and heals the demonized man, instead of re- embracing it, they reject it. And why do they reject it? Again, we know why. Because Jesus, by sending the pigs over the cliff, right, he threatens to destabilize their community. Such a such a powerful thought. I'm trying to think, how does that how does that play out presently? Like, yeah, 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 I'm, yeah, I, for sure. And I think that's, I, I, I'm glad you're pushing for that. And I think we, I think we should push for that. And the way I think it plays out, I think it plays out in a lot of different ways. But, but let, let me say this too. So first we're deceived, but we're deceived at kind of a structural level. Um, so we're deceived in, in terms of the shape of our conscience. Our conscience itself is shaped to experience the world a certain way. Mm -hmm. And that's the level at which Satan deceives us, not by giving us a particular idea, but by giving us a frame through which we see the world and interpret the world that is itself already misguided. So the, the, and it's misguided about orderliness in particular, that that's particularly the, the, the misguidedness, that what we need is order. And we see this, I mean, this is exactly what plays out in, in the story of Jesus. That I mean, why, why was Jesus killed? I mean, the Gospels tell us, right? I mean, Jesus was killed because he threatened to destabilize the order. Right. Like, that's why the cleansing of the temple is such a decisive event. And his mm. teachings, right? And what, what we have are reasonings. I mean, the gospel writers tell us very plainly, Pilate, we know what he was thinking. If I let this man go free, there's going to be uproar. And we know what Herod was thinking, and we know what Caiaphas was thinking. These are the men making the decisions at the time. And the gospel writers say every one of them had one motive, and that was to maintain order. That's why they killed him. And that's why he's killed with thieves who are breakers of the order. Mm-hmm. So here's, here's the, to the, the insight. For the satanic, the prophetic and the demonic are both disorderly. Who? Like when, you, when you've been deceived into leaving an order, the prophetic is just as disorderly to you as the demonic is. And hear me, I'm not saying the demonic is good. Obviously, it's evil. It is a work of evil. 
But the prophetic is the call of the Spirit away from the order we have made to the order God wants to make, to the, the kingdom of God instead of the kingdom of humanity, right? Instead, instead of my kingdom. And the deception is right at that point. We want our order, not God's order. And therefore, the prophetic, as well as the demonic, threatens us. And this is why, what does Jesus say about why he has to go to Jerusalem? I have to get to Jerusalem to be killed because no prophet can die except in Jerusalem. Mm. Right? Why? Because Jerusalem is the center of order. It's the center of structure. So let's come to today. And I, I, there's a story I want to tell, but let me say something briefly and then let you guys respond to me. And then I'll, I'll share that story after that, maybe. But I think that that's what we're seeing play out today. I mean, I, to put it as bluntly as I can, I think that this is why the rioting, polluting, rioting and um, not polluting, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, looting. Looting. Yes. Yeah, that's a Freudian slip. <laughs> Rioting and and looting are so disturbing and frightening for us because they they, they threaten order. And I again, I'm not. I, I think it should frighten us, right? Don't misunderstand me. But I think that what we have to be is discerning about: Am I frightened? What am I going to do in that moment of fear? Am I going to look for false order or am I going to be open to the order God wants to bring? Mm -hmm. And I think this is why to bring it back to the Pentecostal movement, for example, we claim to be a prophetic people, but we're not because if we were, we would recognize that challenges to the order are movements in which God is at work, right? Everything that can be shaken will be shaken. Mm -hmm. And there's no way to tell the story we want to tell without telling the story of orders being shaken. You know, so Exodus is a story of a kingdom being shaken. Egypt is broken apart and Israel leaves. I think and that's, yeah. well, I just think that that's a tremendous point because, um, because it, it took the Israelites an awful long time to cry out because for one thing, it was familiar, even if it, even if it wasn't an order they liked, it was familiar, you know, and so it might've been comforting. And, and I think that it's so important to know that Egypt did have to be broken up. It's not as though the Israelites could have just climbed the ladder and become the rulers of Egypt. They needed to experience exactly. the great the great disruption of the wilderness. Absolutely. Well, and first the disruption of Egypt and then the disruption in the wilderness. Yep. And, and you notice, I mean, Steve, you're right on. I mean, you're right. You've got your finger right on the nerve of it. Moses doesn't come and say to Pharaoh, and this is something Robbie taught me. He doesn't come to Pharaoh and say, let me feed the slaves. Right. Mm. He doesn't come to to Pharaoh and said, let me, you know, let me represent their rights. He says, let my people go. And we're at that moment again. I mean, this is this is the prophetic moment we're in. And we've been in over and over and over in our history. And in every one of those moments so far, we've refused what God wants. And what is God it, wants is to let the people go. 
and it's not and it's not just uh, better or more order. It, it, it is something radically new, which is entirely different order. Yes. And again, I want I want I don't want this to be preachy and over over the heads of everybody. What I mean is not that black people should leave America, but that we should revision what America is so that it is truly home for black people. Yes. Well, and not to and, and other people of color, not not only not only not only black people. Right. Everyone. Um, and, and not to create another tangent, but I think one of the things that's lacking that we that we never see impl- uh, we don't implement that was present in the idea of Pentecost was this same spirit this that was given. It, it's like you mentioned earlier. It was the same liberating spirit at, at the Exodus event, and it was the same spirit at the creation event. And both of those are are basically this this world creating spirit um whether it was the liberation yes. or, and That's so and, and so in exodus and at pentecost what we're witnessing is is the marginalized being given a voice but that is a creative voice and yes. so they're given the opportunity not mm-hmm. just to participate in the fringe of the establishment but they're given the opportunity in the stage to help create the world that they want to live in Absolutely right. And this is why it's Steve, you could not, I think you're so right on it. And and I think this in my sermon for Sunday, which I recorded a couple of days ago, I'm actually preaching two sermons Sunday, but one of them is recorded. One of them is live. And in, in the sermon that I recorded, I talked about the John 20 text for this week, which is Jesus entering into the locked room and breathing on them and giving mm-hmm. them the Holy spirit. And then saying, those whose sins you forgive will be forgiven. Those whose sins you retain will be retained. And for what sins you retain will be retained. He, I, I, I made this very point, Steve, but that is Jesus giving the apostles and the, and the church the same creative spirit that birthed the world. Yeah. Like the, he's giving them the breath of God, which is the life of humanity. And of course, that is a direct contradiction to what happened to George Floyd. He could not breathe. Right. And Jesus is giving us breath precisely for the sake of those who cannot breathe. And the this is the decisive point for me. I mean, I don't the demonic wants to destroy the world and leave it destroyed. The prophetic wants to unmake what is destructive so that God's kingdom can come. So I'm not in any way calling for anarchy, but I am saying that the order we presently have is an order that is not just. Right. And to be a prophetic people is to call that order into question in the name of God's order to say, let, you know, let your kingdom come. I mean, we pray this supposedly mm-hmm. believing that we want God's kingdom to come. Well, if God's kingdom comes, it will displace the kingdoms we've already built. I mean, that's yeah. the whole point of the day of the Lord. And, the, and before Peter says this is, you know, before Peter gets into his sermon, this is what he says, right? This is the day of the Lord. This is what Joel said it would be. A, and this is why Amos says the day of the Lord is darkness, not light. It's darkness for what we've made of the world so that the light of God can come. And you know, I, I think that I think that we, most of us, are complicit in betraying that that calling 
it's never been more stark. I mean, it, it is, uh, it's almost like if we are living in some kind of a simulation, uh, that this is the easy mode. Like it, it's just never been easier to spot what's happening and how it's in confrontation with kingdom and, and all of that. And I just, the, the thing that I keep coming back to again and again, as we're talking about this is that we, uh, you know, we love to make monuments and holidays around Martin Luther King, and we are completely unwilling to continue his work. And, right. and, and so it, it's always about what we've achieved and not about what, op- what possibility was open because of the work. And well, and if not to get preachy on you, but forget MLK, Jesus, of course, we're yeah, monuments around Jesus and refuse to continue his work. We, like it's not like that. That's precise. So to you know, yes, I'm with you. I'm just no. It's yeah. it's I mean, right it, on. Steve and I said this last week. We 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 love to worship Jesus, and I feel like Jesus would would stand in the middle of us and say, "I I have given you a task," <laughs> like. That's exactly right. It, the The work is the worship, you know. Like get get out there and Absolutely. continue my work. Absolutely. So can I, before we move on and, I, and you know wrap up when we need to, but I need to tell the story of MLK's funeral, and I think this is a good place to do it because of what you just brought up, Joseph. So in 1968, in July of 1968. The Pentecostal Evangel, which is, for those who don't know, is the Pentecost is the magazine for the Assemblies of God. They published an article. They published two articles on civil disobedience, and one of them, of course, that was right in the midst right of all the uprisings. Mm-hmm. Right? So in the the and, and one of the things that I, I'm I'm working on a book right now. It's in the early stages, but one of the things I'm going to argue is that you can you can kind of trace the history of Pentecostal compromise with racism by tracing the history of what Pentecostals have said about civil disobedience. Mm. So at the very beginning of the movement, people like William Seymour are civilly disobedient, disobedient. Like that their ministry, literally what they're doing in ministry is an act of civil disobedience. Just just the gathering itself. And it's an act of social critique. Like this is why like the Los Angeles Times is publishing articles mocking the racial integration and the spiritual absurdity of what's happening at the at the mission. And what happens over time is very quickly Pentecostals shift from being social critics and embodying a prophetic critique of American order to aligning with that order. Many, you know, a lot of people know this, but many, many people were, many Pentecostals were explicitly pacifist. Right. During World War One. By World War Two, Pentecostals are not only affirming the military service, which, by the way, I think we should be affirming the military service. If we're calling for a reform of what the military is and how it's embodied. Right. So I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a pacifist in that sense. But they were early Pentecostals were. In fact, some early Pentecostals were arrested. And a, a couple of them were killed for, for actively trying to escape military service. Hmm. And one of them was beaten. Uh, I can't remember his name now, but he was beaten to death by officers. He, he tried to hide when they came to his house to arrest him wow. for skipping a draft. This happened in Alabama. And the officers came into the house and found him and beat him to death. Jesus. So Pentecostals were, 
were resistant to the order. And if you look at early Pentecostal preaching, you know, they're condemning America in all kinds of ways that are condemning American, um, like the, the greed that they see in American culture. They're condemning the, the violence they see in American culture. They're calling some of them, many of them are calling out the racism they see in American culture. And even someone like Parham, even though he's deeply racist, he's also fiercely opposed to so much of the ways in which the kind of American pop culture worked. So anyway, the point is civil disobedience becomes a sin at some point in Pentecostal history. And we could pretty much date, date it. And the, one of the ways we can, that plays out is Gandhi, of course, you know, who later has a huge influence on MLK, right? Mm -hmm. So when Gandhi's first was making his movement, you can look at the early Pentecostals and look at the way they respond to them. And some of them praise him as a man of the spirit, as a prophet, as a follower of Jesus. And some of them condemn him as a demonic. But by the time you get to MLK, everyone is condemning him. Like there, there is no longer a conversation about is this right or not to, to civilly disobey. Every, everybody says civil disobedience is forbidden. And so in 1968, in July of 1968, Assemblies of God magazine publishes two articles. One of them is called an eyewitness to a funeral or eyewitness at a funeral in which an Assemblies of God pastor from Atlanta went to MLK's funeral and came home and wrote about it. Hmm. And they published the article. And in it, he says, among other things, everyone should read it. I mean, you can find it online. The, he, he comes home comes back to his church office he's really disturbed he says really really upset in his spirit and he's not sure why god or what led him if anything if god to the funeral but when he leaves he's really disturbed and he, he makes it clear that he does not stand with martin luther king jr and he says you know i would i'm grateful that he called for nonviolence, but that's not enough civil disobedience is a sin wow even if it's nonviolent, it doesn't matter which tells you, by the way, that what's in our tradition is not that we're against rioting. We're against protesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Disruption of order. Exactly. Right. Rioting is, is, is what we use to legitimize our rejection of protest. We say we're against rioting. What we mean is we're against protest. Correct. And, and again, that's not a – I don't think that's up for debate. Like, I think that's in the historical record at every point. Like – I'm talking about now. And so this man says, you know, I reject King's civil disobedience as sinful. God does not allow that. But he says, you know, I still wonder why God would send me or what would take me to a funeral like this. Why would I go given the way I feel about him? And he says that what comes to him is a passage from scripture. Now he, he's careful. He doesn't say God told me exactly. Not at first. He just says a passage of scripture came to mind. What do you think it was? <laughs> like what passage of scripture do you think? Romans he 13. Goes he goes, that's a great guess. He goes to MLK's funeral, gets back in his car, and the scripture that comes to mind, he says, is from 1 Timothy. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look it up real quick and read this to you. I want you to hear it in his words so that nobody thinks I'm... 
got here. I found it right here. So I, I agree. I began to react to my own feelings about Dr. King and what he stood for. I can't say I fully agreed with his quote unquote nonviolent civil disobedience. Nonviolence, yes, but I wasn't sure our definitions were the same. Civil disobedience, no. I knew the scripture stated that we were to submit to our rulers. Yet I knew that the American Negroes had not been treated right. For years, I have felt that we have done more to evangelize the black African than we have the black American. Which, of course, think about that for just a moment, right? It's couched as a concern for blacks. Mm -hmm. But it's what he's what he's admitting to is that he imagines the black American as the uncivilized black African. Totally. And he, I mean, it's it's profoundly racist, even in his attempt to say feigned concern exactly it's feigned concern that is housing the very racism that has led to the abuse so then he gets back in his car and i'm not going to read the whole article i turned toward this now silent church with the wreath hanging over the door and wondered just wondered why all the trouble how long will such violence last? Now, I want you to think about this. <laughs> he's worried about the violence of the uprisings. But he's not even given a thought to the violence of Jim Crow or the violence of 244 years of slavery that led up to that, much less the violence against Native Americans and the violence against the Japanese during World War II, like the violence of the police during these protests. Like he's thinking only about the rioting. The, the message and, of why these things are happening, why the demonstrations are happening. Yeah, yeah. Why Why is this, why do we have all of this violence? Mm-hmm. And again, the violence he's concerned about is not the violence of genocide. It's not the violence of slavery. It's not the violence of Jim Crow. It's only the violence of rioting. Disorder. Disorder. 100%. So the crowd began to gain its reason and fell in line down the avenue in a final tribute march. I made my way to my car and drove back to our church. And this is the part that I just, I've read these lines, I don't know, a hundred times in the last few months since I found this. He says, as I drove along, verses from the sixth chapter of First Timothy kept coming to my mind. When I got back to the church, I read it. And this is the quote. Let as many servants as are under the yoke Count their masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. I I don't think it's possible to overstate what this reveals. Not about him, but about the culture that shaped his conscience. Yep. This is not about one man. This is I'm not even gonna name his name. It doesn't even matter. Like this is not about him. He lived and pastored and functioned in a Pentecostal church that made it so that his conscience, when he encountered MLK's funeral, right. what came to his heart was slaves obey your masters so that God is not blasphemed. That is satanic deception. Because when he encountered MLK, he didn't see a witness of God's order. He didn't see he wasn't troubled by the fact that that man was assassinated. He wasn't troubled by the racism or the slavery or the Jim Crow abuses. What troubled him, the only thing that troubled him 
is that American order had been upset. And what he believes, and he will say later explicitly, is that if black people kept their place, this would not be a problem. Yeah, it very explicitly says that black people are still slaves. I mean, it, it, it still is like... <laughs> it couldn't be more explicit, right? It's not possible to be more right. obvious, right? Like you said, it's on easy mode. It's on easy, easy mode. And so he goes on toward the end to say a couple more things about, about that. He says, um, I had wondered why I went. I now had a clearer understanding and a new appreciation for God's word and its ability to show us the root and the solution to our problems. Civil rights legislation and government spending cannot, I believe, meet the basic needs of the ghettos, but the gospel can. Perhaps the day is past when whites can minister directly to blacks. They tend to distrust the whites because of the way they have been exploited by them. But if we whites cannot minister directly to the American Negroes, surely we can support qualified Negro ministers who will provide some of the spiritual leadership they so desperately need in this crisis hour. Historically, the Negroes have depended on their ministers for leadership, but many of their ministers are now preaching social revolution instead of the gospel of Christ's saving power. I pray that all who love God and who love all the people of the world may find some way to help our black neighbors spiritually through gospel preaching and Bible teaching. While we deplore the violence that racial unrest has brought to our land, we who know the Lord We who know the Lord and his spirit must recognize that the spreading revolution and lawlessness are a part of divine judgment. Sins of omission are just as serious in God's sight as sins of commission. The sooner we repent and begin to show our Christian love toward all our fellow man, the better it will be for America. But what we must do must be done quickly. And that's where it ends. And I cannot get over the fact that he ends with those words. What we do must be done quickly. That's a direct quote from what Jesus says to Judas. Hmm. Go and do what you do and do it quickly. It's like a subconscious admission that what we're going to do is a betrayal of Jesus. And it has been, and it still is. It's 50 years ago. 1968. Yes, not, not long. No, no, no. And, and the, my entire point is nothing has changed. Like we're, we're, we're still in that exact same place in which we are, what comes to our mind when we see the, the cry of our black brothers and sisters is there's something wrong with them. That's still what we think. And we are betraying the call of Jesus just as much today as we were then, as we were 50 years before that. And we're doing it because our consciences are shaped to do it. I mean, again, this is a pastor who goes because he thinks God is speaking to him. And what God, what he thinks God is saying to him is slaves did not keep their place. That's why this happened to you. That's what's so scary about something like that is he's he's using the quote unquote right tools to reach his conclusions. That's his, that's that's the whole that's who Satan is. <laughs> like, like by definition, right. 
That's that's who Satan is. Right? He's the one who has everything true at his disposal and uses it falsely. I mean, that, that's that's why I'm saying this is to me. You know, so a lot of people say racism is a matter of the heart, and I actually think they're right. It isn't reducible to the heart, but it is about the heart. But they, but not in the way, the way that we often mean it. I mean, it's about the heart because our hearts are deceived. That is, um, like, I just reduces me to nothing. I mean, it, it reading that, you reading that aloud, and that is such a per, like perfect metaphor for, you know, the last fifty years, but certainly my experience of it. I mean the kind of spiritual language that's with it, the kind of uh, special revelation given to me, the kind of uh, this is, this is the, the verse that came to me as though God somehow dropped it into his spirit or whatever, you know, insane language you want to use. And it, it, it reminds me of the, the post you made a few weeks ago about, uh, about scripture about if you, regardless of the exegetical rigor of something, if you arrive at if you arrive at evil ends, you know through seemingly good means of you know exegetical rigor, like I said, it, it's the wrong reading. And so, it I don't care what you know I don't care if you saw gold dust or if you know a wind blew through the room, if the if the message that you receive is that slaves need to obey their masters. It's not from God. And I think that, I think that there has just been, uh, maybe not as, as stark as that, maybe not as obvious as that, but I think that there are 10 million, uh, examples of that exact kind of thinking, that exact kind of experience that are being preached and, and those kinds of views being held now about what's happening today. It's just the, the juxtaposition of, of that with what we're experiencing right now and the kinds of reactions that I'm seeing um, just couldn't be more clear. Right. And the kinds of reactions you're likely to get to this conversation. Right. Like it's the, and I want to be clear here. I, I don't, I'm not scapegoating this man, like this, this, this AG pastor who wrote that, because it isn't about him. It's the it's water that me. he's swimming in. It's, and it's the water I'm swimming in, right? Like it's right. the water I was, I, th- that's the thing for me. There is no, so Ricky Moore said this to me. There's no way to have the inclusivity of Pentecostal power without first having the inclusivity of Pentecostal judgment. Mm. And the spirit's judgment against us is what brings us together to receive God's word for us. And so I'm, this is not, I'm not pointing fingers at that man. This is us. I mean, this is absolutely us. And it's us right now. And it's what's to me so disturbing about it is that 50 years ago, we were saying the same things we're saying now. The things about order and the, same, the things about um, resisting violence and, dis- and and lawlessness and so on and so on and so on. And 
I think what I think is hard to stomach, but true is that this isn't going to change it either. Yeah. Right. I mean, our kids, you know, are going to have this conversation too. I, I told you, you know, at the beginning, I felt like God had given me a word. And I, I don't know when I'm going to share that or if, even if I'm allowed to share any of it. But one of the things that came out of that in my conversation with Ricky is that I think God, in, in, in every moment like this, God speaks. But it's never heard. It's never heard. And what what it seems to be God does is he speaks these words so that later it can be seen to have been said, mm. even though it won't be heard in the moment. So yeah. I think that, you know, conversations like the ones you, you guys and I are having right now, it will, it will fail. I mean, it won't change our churches. It won't change our culture. Some people, some people it will change, right? God always brings up a, a prophetic community, but overall, overall America will be just as white supremacist and racist when we're dead as it is right now. And, you know, there are a lot more George Floyds to come a lot more. And cancer, I mean, the, this, this is racism is not a skin cancer. It's a bone cancer mm. and it's in every bone in the American body. It's not a, it, and we're not going to go in and have a surgery, a day surgery and cut it out. It is in everything. And, but my anger is not at that AG pastor or any AG pastor now. My anger is at the evil. Right. It's at Satan for the ways that he deceives us. I mean, I, the anger I feel is a defensive anger, not, not one. I, I, again, I don't, I don't hate any of these people who are being hateful to others without knowing it. I hate that we're doing that. I hate that I'm doing that. I mean, one of the ways that here's an example of what I mean. So I, I've been pretty outspoken, you know, about these issues in, in a lot of different venues, sermons, lectures, um, papers, social media. And one of the things I realized just this week is how often I've done that without thinking about what kind of pain it brings about when I speak up in a venue that allows other people to speak back against me. Mm. Like, so when I post on social media, there's space for people to come back and be hateful in response to me. But if they're hateful in response to me, it's not me they're hurting. It's every person of color who's reading my post. Right. And in a way I'm making space for that. Like every time I speak, if I'm not careful, I end up creating a space in which this racism exposed because I because essentially what I'm doing, of course, is calling it out and it will come out. And most of the time it will come out, almost invariably it will come out in a form of I'm not racist. Right. Right, like nine times out of ten, because it's satanic. Like it has to come out as a lie. And it's, it's um so let me begin. This isn't about other people. This is about me. I don't know how to live with that. I don't know what to do about it.
one of the things I've tried to do is if it gets like that, to try to direct the conversation to private message. Right. I've, I've, but there are a lot of things I don't post because of that, because I don't know on social media. I mean, um, and it's one. Yeah. I mean, I can talk about that forever. I just, I hope, I hope you hear me. Like, I do. I'm, this is not, it's not me. I don't feel like this is about other people. This is about me. And I, it's, it's about us. It isn't just about me, but it isn't, it, it certainly isn't something I feel like, you know, if we could just get a few people changed, everything would be all right. Like, that's not what this is. Yeah. Considered that too. Um, how even our consumption of this kind of thing as like media, how, uh, how harmful that can be because for us, it's just, uh, for me, I'll just say for me, it's, it's just more things to consume. It's more information, data. It's, uh, it, it can trouble me. It can disturb me. It can, uh, you know, make me think new thoughts and try to um, consider the ways that I am involved in this kind of thing. But it, it, it doesn't come with the same kind of pain that it comes with when uh, a, a black man watches a video like that. I, I've, I've even considered, and I was talking to Steve about this, about even, even the fact that these videos are shown on TV, even something like CNN or something, that we... we uh, they'll they'll post these full things without being blurred out and wonder wonder if it was if it was me which it, of course it you know almost a hundred percent would not happen to me ever but if it did right. w- would the media ever show that video right and I don't think that they would and I think that there's a subliminal thing which is kind of what you're saying which is like this un- these unconscious things that we walk around with that we, we have no we have no idea that we're, you know, the water that we're swimming in. We don't know that we're in water. That, right. that, that, that paints someone like George who died uh, is able to view that in a way that's less than human somehow. Like, I, I, don't, I don't even know exactly how to really formulate that into a thought, and I probably shouldn't have brought it up, but I do think that there's something in it where even... Even, you know, like the lady that was in Central Park, that it's come out that she was like a, you know, she was a liberal lady and she's just in, insanely racist towards this guy that's filming her. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so it's almost like the, as a society, oh, yeah. we're, we're consuming yeah. this in a way that's not human and that is steeped in these kind of racist things that we're not even aware of, even the woke ones, you know? It probably especially the work ones. I mean, I spend a lot of time with with people who are woke or woke adjacent. <laughs> and one of the ways you can tell that it's all shallow, here's the thing. It's motivated more by a rejection of their parents and the white people they distaste. Right. They have distaste for than it is actual love for blacks yeah. or brown people or yeah. anyone else. It's not born out of, it's not prophetic. It's just rebellious. Yeah. And it's, you know, they hate America. 
you know, they hate the nationalism, which no, I think nationalism is aberrant too. Sure. But it's not, you know, I realized this years ago, 15 years ago, teaching young undergraduate students is that they, they hated the nationalism of their parents' churches, but not because they understood the evil that was being done. It's just an aesthetic shift. You know, it's a, and a lot of a lot of wokeness, a lot of it, is simply rejection of the parents. It's not and really love for others. It's not. It's not expressing an alternative. Well, it's, you're right because it doesn't even care about an alternative. It right. just wants to be. It just doesn't want to be. I mean, I, let, let me let me make this about me. So I I planted a church or was part of a plant of a church twenty years ago, more than twenty years ago. And in the middle of that church plant, we kind of, everything spun out and it spun out. And I realized in this moment, I, I mean, I'll, I'll never forget this as long as I live. I, our, you know, everything is kind of spinning out around us and we're, we're like, you know, what are we going to do? Are we done? Are we going to just shut this church plant down? Are we going to launch again? And I went back and started reading notes I had taken at the first meeting that led to the church plan in the first place years and years and years before and it's like God spoke to me and said notice look at these notes pay attention and I started reading we didn't mention God one time this meeting for a church plan we didn't mention God one time in my notes there was not one mention of God there was not one mention of anybody other than us. Everything in that meeting, at least that I recorded, which, you know, was me, so who knows what was actually said, but what I recorded was we want a church plant that fits what we want. Yeah. And I, and I realized that's what I've done. That is my Christianity. It is something I am making for myself, and I'm making it in reaction to what else is on offer. But it has nothing to do with God and nothing to do with my neighbor. It is my choice because I want something different from what's being offered to me. Yeah. And that's what I think is happening with this, these issues of race, too, amongst people that are, quote unquote, woke or woke adjacent, right? They're many overwhelmingly they're performing another selfish consumerist act yeah i, I just so saw this is in, yeah i just want to make sure we're this is not any way a critique of you know one group of people on one end of the political spectrum sure like this is of course this cuts right through all of us yeah i i just saw so many uh folks and and you know people that I would not have expected sharing the video. And for most of the people that I'm close with that are black were saying, uh, you, you know, you may want to stay offline or put, turn your phone off for a couple of days. And it, I just don't think that, I don't think that we're experiencing the actual, I don't, I think even in our wokeness and I'm talking about myself, it's the thing that I've been struggling with is, I don't think that I'm I don't think that I'm engaging at a heart level with it. I don't think I'm experiencing the pain, the depth of the grief and anger that's really there. 
as much as no, absolutely. as much as it is just a theoretical kind of thing to jump in on that you know builds a case that was already being made like oh we'll see this this happen instead of saying uh i don't know so listen, listen no 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 just you i mean you that's it right there i mean that's why so many of my friends who are concerned about racism they're more reacting against the the white officer than they are in compassion for the black man. It's more about again. It's 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 a it's an act ultimately of hate, not an act of love. Mm-hmm. And it is not enough to hate racism. Yeah, I mean there is no way to love God and love neighbor without hating racism. Yeah, but hating racism can be a form of selfishness. It can be a form of hating your neighbor. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so, I, I mean, we have to be really, I mean, Satan is incredibly good at being Satan. Like, like he is, <laughs> he is a deceiver. He knows what he's doing. And I mean, I don't mean this in some mythological way. I'm saying evil is incredibly crafty. And yeah. it will take advantage of your best instincts. It does take advantage of all of our best instincts all of the time, right? And the my wife, so after the shooting in Almond Harbor, my wife had a dream that night that I believe was from God. And well, I mean, I'm, I'm certain it was. In the dream, she saw Ahmed's mother. And she was sitting alone in her house with the lights off at night with her arms around herself, not even crying anymore, just sitting there. If, you know, silently crying. And Julie said, in my dream, I realized she wants her son. Mm. She doesn't want justice. She wants her son. She doesn't want people to know his story. Mm-hmm. She wants her son. Mm-hmm. And when, when George Floyd was killed, you know, he said over and over, he said, I can't breathe. I can't breathe 12, around 12 times. And there's a moment where a man on the sidewalk says something. It's hard to make out, but he says something about how his friend was killed similarly. And Floyd says, I'm about to die the same. And then after that, he starts naming his body parts as they start to go numb. My face, my hands. And then he says, tell my kids I love them. And then he starts calling his boy's mother. Mm-hmm. And that's how it dies. So how do you think his mom or his children feel watching that? Until we feel that, we're kidding ourselves if we think we know anything about what's really going on here. Like, they don't want justice. They want their families. They want one another. And we're, those of us who are aware of racism and concerned about it, that, I mean, if we're not careful, we will settle for that. Mm-hmm. And it will be a, another form of satanic deception, right? Where we do just enough to appease our conscience. Yeah, that's it. And then go right on with our lives. Yeah, how, how to cope How to cope with the, the mild, unsettling feeling that we have, and then the insidiousness of the, that ego finds its way into that, and then we posture with our reactions to that and you are 
you couldn't be more right. I mean, I, I think that's exactly it. We get unsettled. We appease our conscience with a Facebook post or text to a friend. And then we go right on. And what we come away with mostly is disgust at our family members who aren't as woke as we are. Right. And man, God wants more than that for us. Yeah. Yeah. Steve, you there? Yeah. I, I think. Why don't you Why don't you just pray for us? And uh, there's no There's no way to end this, and that's sort of what we started with is that there's, this is an open-ended thing. This is hopefully opening new possibilities for us. It, hopefully it's disturbing us. Hopefully it's getting into our hearts and, um, the, you know, the conversation has to continue, uh, outside of this, but Steve, just, just pray for us and we'll, uh, we'll link back up later on. God, it's so hard to even know how to pray, even as, you know, we're talking about um, appeasing our conscience with a Facebook post or something. Sometimes we use prayer in the same way. Like, God, I feel like I don't want to just try to pray the right thing to, to make it seem like we've got it. Lord, I just cry out over and over how much help we need in these types of moments. It just, we lack wisdom, God. We lack understanding. We lack courage. We lack all of the things sometimes that we need, God, to break through the thick walls of deception. God, I just pray whatever, in whatever way possible. May there be small cracks in which light can shine into those walls. In whatever way this conversation could be used, God, in that manner, may the right ears hear it. Lord, we believe in change that needs to happen on all levels, God, whether it's systemic but I just believe that ultimately it's in the heart of each individual God that learns to ache with the mother who lost a child that learns to ache with sons and daughters who have lost fathers and mothers. God, take us to that level. We don't want to experience that pain, God, but would you give us the strength and the courage to go to that level? because it's the only way I believe that we can begin to implement real and genuine change in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chris. I'm sorry, guys. I know it was really raw and scattered. Some, but... No, I think it's what it needed to be. Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>